Good morning. Will you stand and join us? Oh 
welcome to uh, church this morning, and uh, we're glad you're here. God is good, amen? Amen. Yes. Everybody's like awake. That's good stuff. Man, I, I don't know about you, but, but sometimes um, we, like, we can sing those words, and he is so worthy, isn't he? Th- that is no less true than yesterday, today, or tomorrow. It says, uh, Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? But we change, don't we? Aren't there times when we come in and we, we, we know these words are true, but it's, it's like, man, whatever happened yesterday or, or to even this morning can maybe bring us into this place and be like, I don't even feel like singing. And yet, God is still on his throne. He's still worthy of our praise. And so as we continue this morning and as we sing uh, this, this next song, even the truth of what we believe as followers of Christ, my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit comes and he, uh, he's here with us. He's in us as a follower of Jesus, but that he makes himself known to us today that we can truly sing these words and that they would go down deep into our hearts and remind us of what we have and who we are in Christ. Amen? And so I want to pray as we continue. God, we love you. We praise you for who you are because you are. You truly are. All of these things that we sing about, God, they're true about you. And you have given us your son. You have given us your spirit. You have given us your word to remind us that even in the deepest, darkest uh, pit, God, there is nowhere we can run. There is nowhere we can go from your presence. And there you are with us. And on the highest mountaintop, you are with us. And as we talk about Hezekiah this morning and, 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 and just the, the deconstruction of, of a people who've turned their backs on you, and yet here comes this king who says, No, God is. And this is who we are as his people. Let us turn to him and let us worship him. God, would you take our hearts this morning and would you turn them to you so that we can worship you for who you are, that we truly believe these things that we are singing and that we are encouraged by your spirit as we sing them. In Jesus' name, amen. In this time, in this time of desperation, when all we know is doubt and fear, there is only one foundation we believe, we believe. broken generation when all is dark you help us see there is only one salvation we believe we believe we believe in we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We believe. 
than the crucifixion. We believe that it conquered hell. We believe in the resurrection. And he's coming back again. Let our faith. continue to tune our hearts to sing your praise this morning. Lord, thank you for the promise of your spirit. Thank you for the, the seal that we have through your spirit, for the promise of what's to come, the inheritance that we share with Jesus. And your spirit testifies to our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And so as we continue to worship because that's what we are here to do. Lord, would you continue to unfold yourself to us and remember that cause us to remember who you are and what you've done for your glory and God for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.
This morning we're going to celebrate communion together. But before we do that, I just want to remind us and tell you that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. And we are a blessed congregation to have the three humble, godly servants that we have that serve with us here at our church. And so this month is an opportunity for us to show that appreciation and to give back to them what they give to us every, every week. And so if you would be um, wanting to show your appreciation to our pastors through a monetary gift, you can do that by giving a monetary gift in the uh, offering plate and just marking pastor appreciation, and we'll make sure we get that uh, monetary gift dispersed among our, our pastoral staff. I'd also encourage you perhaps to reach out to them with your own individual gift, uh, maybe a uh, gift card, might be just something as, as simple as, a, as an appreciation note, but wouldn't it be cool if all of us would in the congregation show some sort of appreciation to our pastors who uh, God has blessed us with. And uh, perhaps it's a meal. Maybe you want to take a meal and appreciate their wives and as well as their whole family. So whatever way you want to show your appreciation this month, uh, as elders, we just want to encourage you to uh, reach out to them in appreciation. Uh, this is a great month to do it. Uh, so I encourage you in that. Last week, we talked about Isaiah 53, and in our community group this week, we uh, were reading part of Isaiah 53, and as well, I was listening to it out loud, I was just, again, moved by the words of Isaiah, uh, and just as, it was, as I was listening to it, and as we discussed it in our group, uh, the words just came alive, I think, a little bit to us, and the author of the Gospel Project, if you're following along with that in your study guide, uh, he talked about Isaiah taking us to a mountaintop and giving us a view from a mountaintop look at the 700 years ahead. And usually when you get to a mountaintop, you see a majestic view, but Isaiah doesn't point that picture when you look at Isaiah 53. It's uh, a, not a real pretty picture. It's not a uh, spectacular view, but a view of suffering and a view that's going to happen in the future. And I want to read that to us this morning as we come before the Lord in communion this morning. Isaiah 53, verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. It's not a pretty picture that Isaiah points there about our Savior. And again, I'm moved by what Christ did for us today. So I'm going to ask the ushers if they would come forward and we're going to have communion. We're going to remember what Christ did for us on the cross, the Christ who brought us peace. The men would come. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and he's the Savior of your life, you are invited to join us with us in communion this morning. The bread represents the body that Isaiah says was crushed for our iniquities and it was pierced for our transgressions. 
Let's remember the body that Jesus gave for us. Juice represents the blood that Jesus spilt on our behalf. Isaiah says, with his wounds we are healed, it's through his blood that we have peace. Let's drink in remembrance of that. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice that was done on that day when Jesus, you bore our sins, you bore our iniquities, and you suffered like a lamb going to the slaughter. Father, we can't thank you enough, we can't praise you enough for the peace and the healing, the spiritual healing, Father, that you did on that day for us. We thank you that we can come into your presence this morning in remembrance of what you did for us. And as your sons and daughters, we praise and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. what you call a really smooth transition from an intimate time of worship to uh, moving on into preaching. Okay. What happened from there to there? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Um, first impression volunteers, thanks for handing out the booklets. You read my mind. That was awesome. Uh, if you're a new guest with us, if you haven't completed one of these, fill out the gray section. If you're a regular tender member, fill out the top uh, all those next steps at the bottom are things for all of us, whether it's uh, salvation, uh, baptism. If you haven't joined a community group, we'd love for you to uh, fill that out and mark that so we could be in contact with you. Membership classes are coming up. You can mark that and we'll be in contact. If there's something we, we could be praying for, we would love to be praying for you and with you in something. So write that out, tear that off, uh, hand it to the next person, uh, the booklet, and then the last person in the row, you can um, slide that underneath your seat. All right. Mission projects. We are in the midst of Operation Christmas Child right now in the month of October, gathering supplies so that on the first Sunday in November, Sun Chasers can pack up shoeboxes and send those out. So watch this video. Love to children in need all across the world. 
With each gift given in Jesus' name and fueled by the power of prayer, a teddy bear becomes a friend, a letter, an inspiration, school supplies, an opportunity. And as children hear the good news of Jesus Christ, God's love touches their hearts, churches are formed, and entire communities hear the gospel. And it all begins with your simple gift. Good morning, I'm Becky, and I want to introduce a special guest that we have this morning, Ruth. Ruth is a senior at Metamora High School, and she is a year-round volunteer for Operation Christmas Child, and she has a special story to share with you this morning. Hi, I'm Ruth, as she said, and over the summer, two years ago, I was able to go on a student distribution trip to actually hand the shoeboxes to the children. So I traveled to Namibia, Africa, which is in southern Africa, and I was with 13 other students and six Samaritans per staff members. And while we were there, we were able to go to four different distributions. And um, at each distribution, we were able to give the shoeboxes to the children and worship with them and um, listen to the gospel presentation and then get to watch the children actually open their shoeboxes. And so I brought some of my favorite pictures from the trip. This little girl is, um, she got those things in her shoebox, and um, she was so excited about it. She was going around and posing for everybody, and she was in her element. And then this other little girl also got sunglasses in her shoebox, and nobody really, she didn't really understand why it was so funny, why everyone was laughing at her, but everyone around me and me thought it was hilarious. Then this little girl, she got a stuffed animal in her shoebox. And when she opened up her box, she saw this stuffed animal, and she goes, <gasps> It was so sweet. And one of the th favorite things was always the stuffed animals. And one of the things that I found was surprising was that even the older boys really loved the shoeboxes and the stuffed animals inside them. I mean, you think about older boys, like a 14-year-old boy. They don't want stuffed animals. Oh, no, they do. They love the stuffed animals. And then another thing that I found is really cool to put in your shoeboxes are like a letter and a picture of you and your family. Because it's one thing for kids to get a shoebox and be told, oh yeah, somebody packed this for you. But when the child opens a box and sees um, the picture and knows, oh, these people packed this box specifically for me. And oh, these people, these are the people who did it. I mean, that's, that's really meaningful. And it is able, you're able to get a connection with these kids. And if you put in your address and... Um, Sometimes, not often, but sometimes the kids will actually be able to write you back. And like my family has gotten two emails and two letters back from kids. So that's always a really cool thing to do. So I just put this picture in because it shows how, how much joy these kids have when they're opening their shoeboxes. And then I had to put this one in as the request of my mom because this shoebox is like bigger than this little girl. So. So of the entire trip, my favorite moment was in this picture. The little girl who's doing my hair, I just call her my peanut. She was so sweet. And so she, she's playing with my hair, and she sat on my lap and just snuggled with me. She totally melted my heart. She was so sweet. And it made me realize, you know, we just it's so easy to think of kids living in third world countries as, oh, they're just statistics, and we think of them as pictures or stories. Like, 
it was so cool because I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a real child. This is so cool the, that these shoeboxes are really going to real children. And um, this little boy, his name is Edric. He's 14 years old. He had like a really nice box. It had all sorts of fun toys and games and stuff in it. And of all the things in his shoebox, like I asked him, like, what is your favorite thing? Hmm. So he looked for a little while and pulled out the pair of black Crocs. This is my favorite thing. Hmm. So he looked a little bit longer and he pulled out the toothpaste. He said, this is my favorite thing. Hmm. And so he looked, looked a little bit more and he pulled out the soap. He said, this is really my favorite thing. I was just so amazed because I have a 14-year-old brother at home. And I guarantee if he got black, plain black shoes and toothpaste and soap for Christmas, he would not be very happy. But of all the really fun things in this boy's box, those were the things that he treasured the most. So it really meant a lot to me, like, wow, just even the simple things that we pack in our shoe boxes, those are the things that can mean the most to these kids. And another thing to think about when you're packing these boxes is when we're sending these things to the kids, they're not just, it's not just like we're sending things because when these children get their shoebox, they also hear the gospel message. They get like a gospel booklet in their language. They might be se stepping foot in a church for the first time. I mean, we're like Operation Christmas Child isn't just like a one-day fun thing. Like it's eternal, and it, that's really cool to be a part of. And then this is just kind of fun because it's occurred to me that we can be, like, no matter how old we are or where we're at in our lives, we can still be missionaries and reach out to children around the world no matter where we're at in our lives and no matter, like, no matter what. We can be missionaries without ever leaving our homes or leaving our communities. So anyway, thank you all, and have fun packing your boxes. Thank you. So we are in the process of collecting lots of different things, and time is short. Um, a lot of years you hear about it earlier than now, so don't waste time. There's only October to bring in your items. Um, we will not be accepting any live babies to pack in boxes, so please don't drop those off. Uh, but do look on the program, look on the website, um, go on Samaritan's Purse. They've got a lot of really great, unique little gifty ideas that you might want to look for. Um, but we're excited about this project and thankful for your part in it. So can we just pray together for our project and for Ruth, and then we will move on in the service. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity that we can reach out with your word. Thank you that a simple gift can share the gospel, and thank you that you provide for us so that we can extend that to others. Lord, I pray for Ruth and for her continued ministry that you would grow her faith and use her in those um, special projects. And Lord, we pray for all the boxes that we'll be sending this year. God, I especially pray for boxes that will go to dark places where your word is not accepted. Um, we know that you have the power to open those places so that kids can receive boxes in those areas. We're thankful for that. God, we pray for the pastors who will be receiving these tools, uh, that they will be encouraged, and that the gospel will go out. We, th we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for sharing, Ruth. If you have a Bible, turn to Second Chronicles 29. We're at our halfway point of our series, Prophets and Kings. And as you're getting there, I wanted to share uh, a couple things with you, some family news so you could be praying. This past week, Steve Jesse passed away. Uh, he was someone who attended here 
uh, quite a bit over the past year, and I uh, personally really enjoyed getting to know him and share, uh, share the gospel and talk about faith, and I appreciate, appreciated his tenderness to the Lord. Uh, and so please be praying for uh, him and his family and those who are grieving his loss. And then also a quick update on our staff. Back in September, uh, we had put out a job posting uh, for a ministry coordinator, we called it. And we didn't end up getting any applicants for that job. And when Krista had uh, stepped down from the, from the role as an elder team, we weren't sure if we were going to go toward hiring staff or working through a team of volunteers. Well, uh, we're trusting God in the kind of details of this, and so we're going to go back toward uh, gathering a group of volunteers, and so we've got a group of a half a dozen, four or five um, uh, volunteers that have kind of stepped up, we're grateful for that, so we're going to, this this week will be Krista's last week in the office, and then we're going to work through a team of volunteers, so we're excited about uh, an opportunity to live out Ephesians 4, of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, and we're grateful for those who are saying yes to that, and, um, and so we'll kind of learn as we go. If you have any questions uh, for that, uh, regarding that, feel free to ask me or a member of the elder team, and thanks for joining us in prayer as we continue to walk by faith as a church. Today we're looking at the king, uh, the, uh, king Hezekiah, his life. In the Gospel Project Week, they looked at a story in 2 Kings 19, But there's much to learn about Hezekiah's life beyond just that one story. And so I want to take a step back, if you will, and look at a different story in 2 Chronicles uh, 29 through 31, early on in his reign, right when his uh, kingship begins. And uh, if you kind of progress along, chapter 32 in 2 Chronicles is the story that they talk about in the adult study guide. But I believe this is going to be an encouragement to us individually, for us as a church. I think it's timely for us as a church. On August 28th, in the message, I challenged us with praying six prayers, if you will, in the coming year of ministry. Six prayers that we were laying before the Lord in anticipation and expectation. Six prayers that not only apply to us as a church, but to each of us individually who call this church home. And those six were this. They were wake us, humble us change us, anchor us, unite us, and send us. Wake us from our sleepiness and indifference, humble us of our pride, humble us before the Lord, change us to be more like Jesus, anchor us to his word, unite us as a church family and a body, and send us out as ambassadors and witnesses for the Lord to show and tell of his good news. As an elder team, those reflect the heart and the focus that we are pursuing in the year ahead. We're moving into this new year of ministry with great anticipation of how he will want to work and move in and through us. What you could say is that we're praying for revival or renewal in our passion uh, for ministry, our passion for the mission that God God has called us to. Now, when I talk about the word revival, that's going to stir up all sorts of things depending on our backgrounds. Some of us hear revival and we think large tent, fire, brimstone, a lot of altar calls, a lot of weekly meetings, all right? Some of us think revival, we think, well, this is when the manifestation of the spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts really present themselves. Or we think that revival is, is when a church is on its deathbed, last dying breath, let's have a revival and let's see if this will inject life into the ministry and mission of the church. None of those things is what I'm talking about here when I'm talking about revival or renewal because I don't think we're on our deathbed, okay? I think God is at work and and we're trusting him to do even greater work 
in the year ahead. What can happen in a 13-year-old church plant is that we become complacent. We become apathetic. We become kind of like lulled into um, uh, just kind of coasting, if you will. And that's what I feel like the Lord is stirring up in us a renewal, a revival of the mission and the ministry that he has called us to, whether whatever piece, whatever part of the body that we have in that mission. Pastor Tim Keller gives this helpful definition of revival. He says, biblical revival is the intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. The intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. So revival is not something we manufacture by putting up a tent. It, revival is not uh, something we manufacture through programs or a process. It's what God does through the ordinary operations of His Spirit. And so what are those ordinary operations? Well, you could say that the, uh, looking at Scripture, the Spirit convicts us of sin. The Spirit saves and gives faith to those who don't know Christ yet. The, the, the Spirit gives assurance of salvation to those who are believers. The Spirit sanctifies believers, meaning He matures and grows us up in the faith. He leads us tr to truth. He leads us away from sin. He counsels, He comforts, and, and revival happens when those ordinary operations of the Spirit, when they intensify. And our prayer is that, as an elder team is that they would intensify in the year ahead. That there would be a sweet, strong spirit of repentance that would sweep across our hearts and our church and our households, that our awe and worship of God would increase, that we would avoid the extremes of, on one hand, rigid, joyless legalism, and on the other hand, avoid the extreme of, well, there's really no absolute truth, and we're going to depart from the truth, and we're going to adapt the truth to culture and avoid those two extremes. Because gospel-centered ministry happens here, and it avoids those. We're praying that sleepy Christians would wake up. We're praying that those who are trying to find their faith, their salvation by uh, attending church, by uh, religious activity, by good works, that they would understand the gospel of God's grace. We're praying that those who we would determine as unreachable and unsavable, whether it's in your household, whether it's in your extended family, your friends, this community, that those would be reached, that they would come to know the Lord personally. So why am I talking about revival and renewal? Well, it's because in 2 Chronicles 29 through 31, we see an example of that happening in Scripture. Now, what this text is not is a formula of X plus Y plus Z. Then we'll get, see automatic revival. Then we'll automatically see intensification of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. Too often, we just try to reduce the Lord's actions, the, the Lord, to a formula. As if through our actions, we can manipulate the sovereign and good and almighty and glorifying actions of, of God. But what we see here are some principles. Some actions of the people that aren't just Second Chronicles related, but they're in the book of Acts, they're in the history of the church. So what we're going to do is look at some texts from these three chapters in Second Chronicles, and, and we're not going to read all three of them, all three chapters. What I would love for you to do in your community groups is either look at the content from the adult guide and get into that this week and see how, how it relates to uh, what we're going to talk about this morning, or look at these three chapters, 29 through 31, and see what you pull out. 
See what you see God doing in this people at this specific time. So in the history of the Israelite nation, we're in a time where Isaiah is the prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. King Hezekiah is just now assuming leadership of the southern kingdom, and it's happening right around 716 B.C. And the reign of Hezekiah is a unique one in the history of Israel. An uncommon king because he actually did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Most kings did not. Now, he wasn't flawless. If you get to chapter 32 this week, you'll see his pride on display. All right? But Hezekiah, besides having a really cool name, all right? I don't know, Rhett's and Brook, Rhett and Brooks, that's a cool name. Hezekiah's cool. I don't know. If you've got a, anticipating a boy, maybe Hezekiah, throw that into the mix. But Hezekiah was an uncommon king because he actually did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, because he placed himself under the authority of God himself. And to best appreciate the story of Hezekiah in chapter 29, we need to see where he came from. We need to look at chapter 28, because what we would probably assume here is that Hezekiah comes from this family line that is um, super supportive, a father that just loved the Lord and set the example. We would assume he came from this uh, uh, clean family, if you will, Really great background, a lot of support, a lot of encouragement, a lot of example of Christ-like following. But we'll find the exact opposite. Verse 1 of chapter 28 says this, Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals which is false gods, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an, as an offering according to the, to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and, on every, and under every green tree. So I think it's safe to say that Hezekiah did not have a great father growing up here. Ahaz walked in the ways of the disobedient and rebellious kings. He didn't care about the Lord. He didn't care about doing right by the Lord. He worshiped idols to the point of sacrificing his own children. That's the kind of father he was. Ahaz didn't lead the people to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't lead the people to worship the one true God of Israel. He actually bowed to idols he gets to the point of making treaties and deals with the enemy, which in the end only brings more judgment from God and more attack from the enemy. If you skip to verse 22 in chapter 28, we continue to see Ahaz's example or lack thereof. Verse 22, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them. I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the king of Judah, kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers 
And they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Ahaz was as wicked as they come. Verse 22 says that he even became more faithless to the Lord as time went on. So as Hezekiah grew up, it actually got worse. Ahaz closes the temples that have been built for the Lord. Ahaz ransacks the, the temple of all the sacred vessels. Those high places of the country that were typically referred to or set aside to worship Yahweh, worship the God of Israel, he rejects that and turns them into idol worship places. Chapter 28 is a sobering description of the wicked, sinful, and evil Ahaz as king. So what we might assume then if we read chapter 28 is go, man, Hezekiah is just going to follow right in line with that. What's your family story? If your life is chapter 29, what's your chapter 28 story? What's the story of your parents? For many of you, you grew up with an upbringing that had no faith in Christ component, a godless home growing up. Or maybe it was a church going home, but the only time you talked about church is when the guy on the platform talked about God. Or the only time you talk about God is when that happened. When you got home, it was just this massive disconnect. Church was just an activity that you went to, but it wasn't a life that you lived out, a faith in Christ that you lived out. Maybe you can relate to an upbringing that consisted of worshiping idols rather than Jesus here. Maybe that idol was alcohol. Maybe it's money. Maybe it was people-pleasing. Maybe you grew up in a, with an example like Ahaz in that the generation before you was in it for themselves. They were selfish, self-centered, prideful. Ahaz left a wake of destruction in the rearview mirror. His lack of godly leadership leads this nation to idolatry away from the Lord to the point of destroying his own kids. In many conversations I have with cross-pointers through the years, I find that there is often this theme of wanting to avoid the sin and failures of the previous generation and your generation. If you came from a broken home, you don't want to repeat that in your generation. If you came from addiction, whatever it was, you don't want to repeat either that same addiction or something different in your generation. If you came from an upbringing that lacked faith in Christ and you didn't talk about the scriptures, you didn't pray, you didn't uh, worship together, you're trying to redeem that and blaze a new trail, if you will, in that new generation. I called this message Revival and a New Generation because you see both these themes in this chapter and both are intertwined. So, does Hezekiah follow the example of Ahaz? Verse 1 of chapter 29. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. So Hezekiah is identified with David rather than Ahaz because his character reflects that of David. David, the spiritual leader, the political leader, not flawless, but Scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. I love how the author here draws that contrast of Ahaz. You're not, you're not connected to David. You're not doing what was right according to uh, the Lord or according to David. Hezekiah, though, he's tied, to, he's tied to David. It doesn't remove the bloodline of Ahaz, 
but it, it helps us see that his identity is rooted in, in David who sought to please the Lord. Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah did. A stark contrast to how he grew up. Too often as God's people, I think we make this really, really bad assumption that we'll never overcome the struggles and sins of the previous generation. Well, uh, family was broken before. I guess ours is broken too. Well, you know, mom or dad struggled with that, so I, I guess I do too. And we just make this assumption that we're just kind of left um, hopeless, left powerless. But here we see this biblical example of Ahaz going in one direction and Hezekiah doing a 180 and saying, no, we're going to go this way. The nation has been led away from the Lord by Ahaz, so what will Hezekiah do? How will he lead the generation back to the Lord? Verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and turned away, from their, fa- turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. So what is Hezekiah's first priority as king? It's to return the nation to worship in the first year of the first month. We're going to return to the Lord. Ahaz had closed the doors of the temple and Hezekiah is going to reopen them. Under the leadership of Ahaz, there were no priests, no Levites because the temple was closed. But Hezekiah calls them back and he first calls them to consecrate themselves, meaning set yourselves apart for God's purposes. That where there is sin, repent from that. Where there is unholiness, pursue holiness. This idea of consecration shows up in the New Testament. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in, the view, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We offer and give ourselves completely to God. As believers in Christ, our lives are to be set apart for His purposes, not for ourselves, but for the Lord and His mission. First Peter uh, 2 says that we've been set apart so that we might proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Hezekiah charges them to consecrate themselves, to turn around, to go in a different direction than Ahaz had gone. And the direction being toward the Lord. It's a call to repentance, a call to return to the Lord, a call in terms of our prayers for this year to wake us, humble us, change us. What we see Hezekiah focus on is worship. This is why when when Jesus is asked, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is to worship Him supremely because that love then shapes us. It, it shapes our convictions, our beliefs, how we treat others. If in the generation before you, there was no Christ-like example, then take this lesson from Hezekiah here and let your first response be to worship, to love the Lord your God. That where the doors have been closed, that you would reopen them. Where idolatry existed, that you would cast those aside where there was pride in that previous generation that you would be a generation that would ask the Lord to give you a spirit of humility by his power and grace. 
You might say that Hezekiah could easily be saying Jesus' words of that he wants the nation to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Chapter 29 continues, they, the previous generation, verse 7, they also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of God came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity captivity for this that is grim that's a grim situation but it doesn't stop there verse 10 now it is my heart hezekiah my heart to take a covenant with to make a covenant with the lord the god of israel in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us my sons do not now be negligent for the lord has chosen you to stand in his presence to minister to him and to be his ministers and to make offerings to him when you read that, you can't get by the hope of Hezekiah. You can't ignore that. Hezekiah could have easily looked around and thought, man, this is, looks really grim. This entire nation rejects the Lord. They don't, uh, they don't uh, worship him. Idolatry is rampant. The temple has been closed. He could have been really depressed, kind of fallen into this, just paralyzed. I guess we can't do anything. But instead, he's committed to follow the Lord. He rallied the priests to reopen the temple for worship. He called the nation back to God. And as, and as God breaks into a situation, the darkness is dispelled by the light of his presence. Just imagine those doors being closed. Overgrown darkness. And Hezekiah, the first thing he does is we need to reopen these doors. We need to let the light of the Lord pierce that darkness. God's people should be a people who are a a people of hope, a living, powerful, pushing back the darkness type of hope. And if the generation before you was a bit like Ahaz, that we would reject the tendency to fall into pessimism or cynicism or fearful living, but rather that this hope in a God who is able to do far more than we could ask for or imagine. Hezekiah has hope in the midst of enemies that have overrun his people. He has hope despite this society that is godless Far too many Christ followers, please listen to me, far too many Christ followers are living by fear of the what-ifs. And election season only stirs that up even more. It reveals that we live by fear. And we are prone to not live by faith. We need to be a people who live by faith in a God who never leaves nor forsakes. A God who is in control. A God who is sovereign. November 9th, he will be as well. That won't change. A God, you, you've read the rest of the story, right? So we don't have to live in fear. We can live by faith in a God who is at work, who is working out all things for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. Hezekiah was a man of hope. Wake us from our idolatry. Humble us before, our greatness, humble us before his greatness. Change us from being hopeless or cynical or fearful. Instead, be a people of hope despite circumstances, despite the generation before us, no matter their example, good or bad. Notice that Hezekiah calls the people to not only be worshipers of God, but workers for him, ministers for him, to love him supremely. This is send us. 
I love that little, uh, to be ministers to the Lord, but ministers for the Lord, to be his hands and feet, to, to be a kingdom of priests. Verse 15, again, or skipping to verse 15, they, the priests and Levites, they gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord with the, house, with the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook of Kidron, where they lit it up. Okay? Verse 17, they began to consecrate on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days, they consecrated the house of the Lord, and on the sixteenth day of the first month, they finished. Then they went in to Hezekiah the king and said, We've cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils, and the table for the showbread and all its utensils. All the utensils the king Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. The priests literally clean house, and it takes them 16 days. So this turn back to the Lord is it's not just this lip service, by Hezekiah, but it's followed by actions of the people. To use the words of Joshua, it was a generation that said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That if given a choice between serving this other Lord, or this, other, this false God, or this idol, or my past, we're going to choose to serve the Lord. We will trust in the Lord. We're going to break from that sinful generation before you and and we're going to long to see revival and renewal take place in our household, in, in our family tree. If that is our heart, then we're going to have to literally clean house when it comes to our lives, the things that take our minds captive, the idols that pull us away from the Lord. Look at verse 15 again. They gathered the brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Hezekiah leads the people back to obedience to God's word. He commands the people to clean up the temple and to turn from idols, and he does so, it says, by the words of the Lord. So Hezekiah is not coming up with these ideas on his own. The way in which to clean the temple was, was according to the law of Moses. They are found in the words that the Israelites are to live by. If you go to chapter 31, verse 21, you read that every work that he undertook, Hezekiah undertook, was in accordance to the law and the commandments of God. Hezekiah has a commitment to the word of God. He wants to obey the word. In our prayer, this is anchor us. Anchor us to the word. Anchor us, Holy Spirit. Help us to obey and delight in your word. So the principle we can take from chapter 15 or verse 15 here is not to go out and make guilt and thank and burnt offerings. Although last week we had a great burnt offering at the tailgate. All right? But the principle for us as New Covenant Christ followers, because we're not under the law of Moses, we're not Old Testament Israelites, the principle for us is to anchor ourselves, root us in the authority of God's Word. That we would be a people who would live by the words of God. If you're trying to overcome a previous generation, the unfaithfulness of that generation... You're going to need to be anchored to the Word because otherwise you're going to be tempted to trust in your own wisdom, your own thoughts, your own ideas. Hezekiah leads the people to return to worship and return to the Word. Spiritual renewal always comes through a renewed commitment to God's Word. Hezekiah is making this bold break from the previous generation and it's anchored in the living, relevant 
necessary word of God, Hezekiah starts with a call to the priests to consecrate themselves. Before you worry about the nation, before you worry about your own household, consecrate yourselves. Wake us, humble us, change us, anchor us. If the worship team wants to come back up, if you skip to verse 28 there in chapter 29, the cleansing's taken place of the temple. People have repented. They've consecrated themselves back to the Lord. And you read verse 28 through 30. The whole assembly worshipped. And the singer sang and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed down, bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of, and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. When spiritual revival and renewal takes place in our lives, with it comes singing and celebration and rejoicing. Imagine, there's no songs under King Ahaz. And then we see the songs, the psalms, brought back. We're going to sing the songs of the Lord. Hezekiah leads them in. In our prayers for this year, this is unite us in a lot of ways. United around worship, united around our shared love for Jesus and what he's done and, and who he is and our shared stories about how he's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light to declare his praises to a watching world, to those who so desperately need the love and the hope and the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. Wake us, humble us, change us, anchor us, unite us, send us. With that desire, with that heart, let's stand up and let's rejoice and let's celebrate and let's sing to our God. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's sing this morning about our good, good father. Amen. Say our word, your 
with our last song. We're going to take our offering. So ushers, you can come forward if you haven't done that already. And let's worship our Savior, our risen King, as a people we have come to worship. Amen. As believers who have been saved by grace through faith, we have something to celebrate. So let's do that. Father, we love you. We give you all the glory and honor and praise. Have your way in us. Change us for your glory. Amen.
Our prayer is that you would wake us and that you would humble us as your people, that you would change us, that you would anchor us to your word, that we would be a people of your word. I pray that you would unite us as your body and as your family and as your people, and I pray that you'd send us, that we would be a people who would live on mission wherever we've been called to, wherever you've providentially placed us, that we would show and tell of your good news as your people. We would proclaim your praises as a people who have been called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Thank you for your grace, your power, your spirit at work in us and through us. May you be glorified, may you be honored, and may you do far more that we could ask for or imagine or articulate in a prayer, Lord. May it be for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Back at Guest Connections, there are some cards with that prayer. There's one for you. Um, you can grab that on your way and put that somewhere uh, in front of you this week. Meet somebody new before you leave. God bless.